So are you awake now? <laughs> I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction means I, I can get some satisfaction, right? Well, in our new series, Cornered, that's kind of what we're asking ourselves. How do I find satisfaction? Because a lot of times there are so many things that we are pursuing in life. We're so busy. We're so overwhelmed. We often feel like we paint ourselves into a corner. So how do I find space? How do I find margin? How do I build those things into life so that I actually have room to find satisfaction? And we look at some of the resources we know that we have, some of the things that we pursue, like money. How do I pour out this financial bucket? How do I spend? How do I save? How do I give? How do I pour out this bucket in a way that is deeply satisfying? Or maybe it's energy. Where am I spending my energy? Where am I overspending? Where am I underspending? How am I using my time? What are the things that I run to? What are the places that I work hard? And do I have space? Do I have margin to rest and refill this bucket? How am I pouring out this bucket in a way that is deeply satisfying? And then there's the time bucket. Of the ones that you see before you that we're going to explore in this series, this is the one I cannot refill. Sure, there are ways to get more money into the finance bucket. There are ways to step back and get a little more energy into the energy bucket. But the time bucket is always getting lower and lower. So how am I using my prime time? How am I using my downtime? How am I arranging all of these pieces to pour out this bucket in a way that is deeply satisfying? It's one of life's most critical priorities, and yet it's one that for many of us, we always feel like we wish we were prioritizing. How to find space, how to find margin, because without it, life just becomes overkill. But we want to find satisfaction. So we want to avoid overkill, we want to find satisfaction, so that instead of painting ourselves into a corner, we can find ways to avoid that. So as we explore in this series, we're kind of trying to figure out how do we manage these resources? How much of this do we pour out on work, on family, even on leisure? A friend of mine, James, is in a management position at AbbVie, and I was talking to him once because he told me that he likes to pay someone else to mow his lawn. Now, he can certainly afford that, but I've also been to his house and seen his lawn, and I thought, it's not that big. And I actually told him, I said, dude, save that money and do it yourself. And what he told me was, well, the reason he likes to pay somebody else to do it is because that means once a week he's got an extra 45 minutes or so that he can spend talking to his wife when she gets home from work about how her day went. All right, good guy James, making me look bad, right? But it got me thinking, because as he told me that story, I realized, to me, this was the most important bucket. 
Like every little bit, you know, 10 bucks is 10 bucks. If I can get a little bit more in there, that, that counts and that's important. But he was thinking more about the time bucket, about relationships, about what was he willing to give up? Where was he really looking for that satisfaction? And it made me ask myself this question. What if satisfaction comes from a who, not a what? What if it's not the achievements? It's not the number in the bank account. What if it's actually a who? So this morning as we begin to explore... I hope that we're going to find three ways to avoid painting ourselves into a corner. And to do that, we're going to jump into the Wayback Machine, and we are going to go all the way back to the beginning of the beginning of humanity itself. So if you're familiar with the Bible, the first book is Genesis, and it starts with chapter 1. Now, there are a lot of things going on in the first few pages of Genesis. And there's some pretty cool stuff about the way that God creates, some incredible science that backs up what the Bible is telling us. But one of the things that I don't want you to miss here is that if this book is what it says it is, if God is who he says he is, then I ought to be able to find things, even in these first few pages, where man and woman first arrive, that help me understand deeply something about myself. You see, the Bible presents itself as history, and part of its purpose is to help us understand ourselves better, and even more so, to help us understand God better. So in Genesis chapter 1, in the 27th verse, listen to what it says about when we first showed up. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. Now pause there for a second. That just told you, you are created in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, that phrase, that we are created in the image of God, that is unique to humanity. That is what sets us apart from everything else in all of nature, all of the animals. This is the reason that people fight for human rights. This has been the reason for thousands of years that we care about life and we believe it has eternal value from the unborn to the deathbed and beyond. Because we are made in God's image. That there are ways that we are uniquely like God among all of creation. Now there are definitely ways that we are not like God, right? If he is who he says he is in this book, God is all-powerful. I am not. God is all-knowing. I like to think I am sometimes, but I'm not. God is always good. Let's make this one plural. Let's say we're not, right? But there are ways that we are like God. Ways that he wants to teach us to be like him. That we can actually learn to forgive like God forgives. To love like God loves. That we can have peace and patience from God himself. And that God has given each and every one of you, I believe this, a soul. That there is something spiritual about us that can sound a little strange, but that reaches beyond what we see in the here and now. That reaches beyond just the physical things around us. 
And so one of the first things we see about ourselves is that we were made uniquely for this kind of relationship with God. Now what's really cool about that, you can see in the next verse there, it says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and look at this phrase, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this phrase, subdue it, now that's really interesting because God has been hard at work for six days. Mankind shows up on the sixth day. And when man gets there, God gives him work to do too. God says, subdue the earth. Bring order to the chaos. Because that's what God has been doing. God has been moving things from darkness to light. God has been moving things from chaos and void to order. Plants, animals, people, sun, moon, stars. And that's a rhythm that God has throughout this book. Moving from chaos to order. And so it's interesting that God, when we show up, gives us work to do because that's actually the first way that we avoid being cornered. Avoid being cornered by finding the good in God-given work. Avoid being cornered by finding the good in God-given work. Now when I say that, I want you to hear this. God-given work is not the same as when you hear people say like, he does the Lord's work, <laughs> okay? It doesn't mean you have to work at a church or a charity or anything like that. In fact, you think about the job first given to Adam and Eve, subdue the earth, keep the animals in order, rule over them, that we are the crowning jewel of creation. So think about maybe the question for you is, how has God skilled you? What has he taught you? What have you learned? What do you know? How do you look at the world around you See chaos, bring order, and subdue it. Not as a despot, but with creativity like God had. You see, then work is actually one of the good things that we enjoy with God. So you think about the picture of chaos. Because this, this is what I love as we're using kind of this paint theme. You think about a, a big pile of paint supplies. It's a mess it's chaotic. You know, if you give this to a child, it's going to get even messier and even more chaotic. But if you put a piece of paper in front of them, a piece of canvas, before too long, even that chaos becomes maybe like a sun with a smiley face on it. It often ends up with a picture of like a little person, that's the kid, and then a bigger one, that's mom or dad. You know, maybe some fluffy clouds in the sky. You present them with chaos and even a child starts to bring order. You give these supplies to Michelangelo, you get the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You give them to Bob Ross. Ever watch Bob Ross? You get happy little trees. <laughs> this is God's rhythm for us. One of the ways that we are like him is in how we get to use our resources, our finances, our time, our energy to be creative, to bring order to chaos. I was with a friend, oh man, a year or two ago. He was having surgery and so I was waiting out in the waiting room with his family and talking to his son who was describing the robot that was helping with the surgery. Now, now, I had heard about this a little bit, but it was incredible to hear him say in intricate detail 
how all of the programming, all of the engineering that went into this robot so that the surgeon could make incisions with precision that they had never been able to before. Combining all of the skill of those human hands trained for exactly this thing with the engineering and the order built into this machine and the way that they could partner together to bring a new level of order to something as chaotic as disease. And it was especially because, I mean, I'd heard about this. I didn't know a lot of the detail, but my understanding was his son had actually been part of a team who was developing some of that engineering. And it was incredible to hear the way that came together. That's a job well done. That is good work. That is the kind of stuff that God loves because it's the kind of stuff that God does. In fact, if you look at the very next uh, couple verses later, it actually says, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. God's work was very good, and then included the work that he gave us to do. Indeed, it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Now what's important about this is that we understand from, from this little moment, work is good. So even as we wrestle with how we paint ourselves into corners, and it feels like work is often the enemy, that work is the thing that can get in the way of the time that I want to relax and the time that I want to spend with my family. That's why it's important to look all the way back to the beginning and see that God intends work to be good and that there is something that we partner with him in that. Because this moment with Adam and Eve, with God on the sixth day in the garden, this is before what we call the fall. Before anyone had done anything selfish or prideful, before anyone had rebelled against God. And so in this moment... All there is, is good. But you and I know there are ways that work can become broken. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was here uh, Sunday night at Authentic Manhood, which you probably heard us mention, and and even that phrase is like, well, what is like authentic manhood? Um, So just to demystify that for you a little bit, it's basically, we've got some curriculum in front of us because as guys, we're getting together trying to figure out how do I be the worker, how do I be the boss, how do I be the husband, the father, the friend that I really want to be. And what, what is so perfect about this, we didn't do this on purpose, but hey, it happens. Right now, in this season of Authentic Manhood, our topic is a man and his work. Looking at how do I enjoy work, how do I pursue work, because I love a job well done, and how do I balance that? How do I find satisfaction in that, even as I balance it with the rest of my life? And and so I'd encourage you, um, like the real men, the authentic men that we are, we skipped last week for the Super Bowl, because that, I mean, right? My in-laws are Chiefs fans, so go Chiefs. Which means, if you come tonight at 8 o'clock or tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., you've only missed one week. And so I invite you to check it out because as I sat at my table with these guys last week, and I won't tell you who they are because what happens at Authentic Manhood stays at Authentic Manhood, okay? But we were going through four ways that work can break, four ways that things can go wrong at work and how people are processing them. And this was very interesting to me because we were supposed to go around, look at these four things and give them each a percentage for what we thought was happening in the place where we work. And so one of them was that people are disappointed at work. Right, That they're doing their job, but it's not really living up to what they had hoped it was. They're not really getting paid what they hoped they were. Another one is that people are disengaged. They go to work, but they're kind of checked out. 
And so maybe they're lethargic or whatever it is. One of them was that people are underworking. They're going to work, but doing everything they possibly can to avoid as much work as possible. And as we looked at this around this table, almost to a man, all of us had a heavy percentage weighted toward this fourth box. Over-engaged. That we most often work more hours than we need to, bring more work home than we mean to, that we can never quite turn off the part of our brain that is keeping track of work. Now, why does that happen? Well, sometimes it's the nature of the environment, right? Like sometimes I'm trying to achieve this thing. I'm, I'm trying to put more in this bucket. And so I have to be here an hour before everybody else. And I have to stay an hour later or I'm going to lose my edge. Sometimes it's just because we love what we do. I mean, when you're developing that robot to do that surgery and then they get to use it for your dad, like, that's cool. Sometimes it's just because we enjoy it. But what ends up happening is we become over-engaged. And so just perfect example of this as we were talking around the table, we realized most of us, when it's time for vacation, we're going like a thousand miles an hour before vacation, trying to get everything done so that there's not so much when we get back from vacation. Then we finally get to vacation. It's like hitting a brick wall and <sighs> really, really resting now, right? And what ends up happening is then I spend the first half of vacation trying to feel like I'm on vacation. And then I spend the second half of vacation worrying about all the work that's piling up for when I get back from vacation. <laughs> I'm telling you, almost to a man around that table, guys said, well, that's why I bring my laptop with me on vacation so I can get some work done while I'm on vacation. <laughs> like, no show of hands, but you're with me, aren't you? But see, the problem is we're not getting the rest that we need. See, God gives us these patterns throughout the book of Genesis that start in this first chapter, that God is constantly moving things from chaos to order. But our own patterns often look like chaos to order, to chaos to order, to chaos to order, to exhaustion. Or maybe it's chaos to order, to chaos to order, to defeat. And we finally just give up because I can't do this anymore. And I end up blowing up my job, blowing up my family, blowing up my personal life, something else, because I've spent too much energy, too much time, whether it's chasing achievement or money or work or whatever it is. So even though the work can be good, it is costing us rest. And so what I love about this, if we just sneak into Genesis chapter 2, the next thing that happens is this. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. A word that just means set it apart. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Think about what this says. God ended his work. God is the only one who has an energy bucket that never runs out. He has all of the energy, all of the resources, all of the time, all of the power. His energy bucket is never drained. It is always overflowing. 
If this book describes him the way he really is, and I believe that it does, then God is the wisest, most brilliantly intentional, most influential in all of history with his time and his resources, and he chooses rest. He chooses rest. What this means is that rest is not a weakness. Rest is not a waste of time. Rest is not a guilty pleasure because really I should be working. Rest is not laziness. Rest is a gift. And rest is godly. In fact, if you look at those same verses, you'll, you'll notice it keeps saying seventh. On the seventh day, God ended his work. On the seventh day, God blessed the seventh day. So there's this kind of religious word out there that you may have heard, which is Sabbath. You ever heard that word before? The word Sabbath actually comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. All right, so we're learning today, right? Shabbat literally just means seven. But it becomes an incredible piece of the history of God's people. Because what he gives them in the seventh is that he's telling them, rest is good and I want this for you. In fact, later in the life of his people, there's a time where they are in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. They are captive slaves with no ability to rest. Because when you're a slave, you don't choose rest. Someone else chooses work for you. And so God actually writes this into the Ten Commandments. Remember the seventh, the Sabbath, and keep it holy. Again, a word that means set apart. That God actually builds it into like a command to say, you need rest. It is good for you. It's a gift that he gives us that so often we miss out on. But he writes it all through the pages of this entire book. Because he wants to rest with us. And so that is the second way that we avoid painting ourselves into a corner. You avoid being cornered by finding freedom in God-given rest. You see, if I can't rest, if I can't put down the email, I can't ignore that text, like I can't leave that phone call because what if I'm missing out or someone's getting ahead of me? Or You may not be living in the freedom that God is intending for you. But his plan for us is God-given rest. That's a mark of freedom. And it's not just like, work as hard as I can right now so hopefully I can retire sooner and get to that rest part. And it's not even on a weekly thing, like just, I gotta get this work over with so I can finally get to that day off. But it's the idea of chaos, order, and then for God, there's reflection. That we actually take time to bring our energy levels back down, appreciate a job well done, and rest. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound peaceful? Doesn't that sound generous of God? Because he's never going to get tired, and yet he chooses to rest and to give us rest. I don't know about you, but when I think about these kinds of things, like this is one of the hardest places to practice what I preach. <laughs> In fact, a few years ago, I, I hit this point where if you were talking to me, everything I was working on 
was good. Like, it all sounds good. Like, I was full-time at my job. Things were going well. I was building in my career. I was gaining in skill. I was getting more responsibility. I was also helping other organizations doing similar things by contracting with them, teaching them things, learning from them. And at the same time, a friend and I started up an organization of our own, a, a charitable organization, pounding through all that 501c3 paperwork, all that good stuff, and loving it. It was so much fun. And like every single thing, if you stepped back and looked at it, you would say, that's really good stuff. That is really cool. Only problem was, those things took a lot out of my time bucket. It meant I had less and less time for my friends, less and less time for my wife, less and less time for my kids and my family, less and less time, honestly, to just rest. And so it got to the point where I I never would have noticed how much it was deeply affecting me. Because then I was going into everything tired. Like the law of diminishing returns, that's a real thing. When we work that hard, we end up procrastinating more. We end up working harder and getting less done. Stuff that would have taken two hours ends up taking four hours. We're trying to chop down trees, but we never sharpen the axe. That was happening to me. And it affects other areas. Without noticing it, I had a shorter temper, a harder time dealing with temptation, because I didn't have the energy for those things, because I was spending them on all these good things. And so processing with a mentor... I realized what I was missing was rest. And so for the first time in my life, I set aside a seventh. And I don't want to be legalistic about this, so I'm just describing for you what, what, what worked for me. But we actually sat down as a family, looked at our calendar, moved things around, and it was hard. But we decided to set aside a 24-hour period every week to totally disconnect from work. Even the good things and just rest with family, with friends, with God. Like midnight to midnight, like I close the tab on that email (laughs) before I go to bed because otherwise I'll be just tempted to check it real quick and just get a couple things out of the way in the morning. I, I know it might even sound silly, but I cannot tell you how my life changed when I sat before God and essentially did what the Bible calls repenting which means a change of mind, a change of direction, said, God, I've been thinking about my resources the wrong way. I've been striving for more and more and more in the achievement bucket, in the financial bucket. God, I want to give my time to you. I want to enjoy the rest you've given to me. And now I have more freedom and joy in what I'm doing than ever before. Currently, I have a full-time job. And then my family and my friends and my God. And I love it. I love it. And I think that's what God wants to give us. I think that's what God has as a gift for you because that helps restore our relationship with Him. In fact, the third way that we avoid being cornered, avoid being cornered by finding satisfaction in God-given relationships. I think this is what answers that question that I started with. What if satisfaction comes from a who, not a what? Because if you've been where I've been, like I can chase this stuff all day long. And and I can feel like it feels good that I've got more in that bucket or more in the achievement or more in my reputation or more on my resume. And you never quite get there. I mean, how often do we hear Super Bowl champions, NBA champions, tennis champions... I was watching a video last night, yes, of a competitive video game champion. 
And they all say the same thing. They reach the top of the mountain and then say, now what? Was that it? Because there's no satisfaction there without coming back to the relationship that God was setting up in these very pages. I mean, think about this. If mankind, if humans, male and female, are made on day six and God rests on day seven, humanity's first full day on earth was a day to just rest and hang out with God. In fact, that's what God uses to restore our relationship with him. In fact, when God showed up on this planet as a human being himself in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus actually said to some of his friends in the book of Luke, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself, to make sure that we understand he's God, but he's also human. But he, calls, he gives himself this phrase, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you know what Sabbath means, because we talked about it. So when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's telling you, I am the master of rest. He is the greatest giver of rest. And we heal our relationship when we rest with him. In fact, so much of religion is the stress and the anxiety of trying to work harder and harder and harder and harder, trying to appease God, hoping that when I get to the end of my life and we do that annual review, except that it, like, it covers my entire life, like I hope I hit my objectives because that was like my only chance, right? But the rest that God gives, the rest that Jesus offers, what he's saying is, all of the good things I think I've done, all of the bad things I'm trying to forget, I can bring all of that into the light. Receive forgiveness from Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, Master of Rest, because of the work that he did. That when Jesus went to the cross, when he died, conquered death, conquered all of those things that I've done, and rose again, it was to give me the freedom of rest. That he paid the penalty for me. He paid the price for me. He used resources that I did not have to heal my relationship with the God who created me to hang out with me, to spend time with you because he loves you. Jesus is the ultimate rest giver. So let me suggest a key takeaway for us. I think what I have found in my own life and what I would encourage you, find time for rest with God. Find time for rest with God. I read a quote by an author named Mark Buchanan. He said that much of the time... We think that God wants our attention so that we'll do something. But what if God just wants our attention? I love that. Because I think one of the things that I've found as I've built rest into my calendar, into my schedule, is that the time I spend with God is so healing. So maybe you aren't convinced about God or Jesus or the Bible. You know, maybe some of this sounds a little bit like, you know, how do I take this all in? Well, think about it this way. 
number of years ago, my, uh, my family owns a cabin up in Minnesota on a, on a beautiful lake, but nobody's there during the winter. So at the end of the season, we always have to go in, kind of finish up some of the fall chores, and then winterize the cabin so that it's protected during the really cold days. Like you think today is bad, Minnesota's like minus 30 and you can't open the front door because of the snow, okay? So we have to get the cabin ready for that. And usually my dad and Uncle Kevin would go up and do that. But when I got old enough, like when I became a man, I got to go and close the cabin too. And so I remember the first year that me, my dad, and my Uncle Kevin went up to close the cabin. And like, I was loving it. I got headphones on and I'm raking leaves and we're digging stuff out and we're going underneath and we're wrapping up the thing so it doesn't freeze this winter. And like, I see dad, he's working over there. Great job. Uncle Kevin's over there. Great job. And I'm just, I'm doing my thing. Seriously, I was having so much fun doing good work. And at the end of the day, as the sun started to go down, my dad came to me, you know, tap on the headphones. Hey, yeah, what dad? We're done for today. No, no, wait, we're doing awesome. We can get more done. Like I was ready to, I want to keep cranking. I said, you know, put a headlamp on and let's keep going. He said, nah, we, we'll work tomorrow. Right now we're just going to go rest. We're going to go hang out. And so me, dad, and Kevin went to this local place called Happy's. This was a good day. I got the 21 shrimp basket. I got the bacon cheeseburger and the chicken wings. Like I think I skipped lunch, but we, we were having a good time. But we just sat, hung out, talked about all the good work we'd gotten done that day and just rested together. Went back and made a fire in the cabin. And I got to tell you, I have a lot of memories of my uncle from when I'm a kid. And like he makes funny jokes and I laugh at it and I run away and play with my cousins. But I actually think that is the best memory I have with my uncle. Because that time of rest, after all that good work, I felt like it was the first time I really got to know him as a man, as a friend. Because we slowed down to spend time together. So when you think about what it looks like to find time for rest with God, you know, maybe it's just this simple. Maybe it's today. Just find 15 minutes later today. No TV, no internet, no phone. Set it all aside for 15 minutes. I know, it's hard. But I promise you, like, there's days now on, our, on my rest day where it's like, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, hey, where is my phone anyway? It feels so good. <laughs> maybe just find 15 minutes to rest. You know, maybe you use that time to think of three things in your life that you feel like are really good, really blessed, that maybe God has given you. And even just try a one-sentence prayer. Just, just give it a try to, to relate to him a little bit and say, thank you, God, for these three things. Now, if you're really ambitious, you can go for that 24 hours. It, it is hard. So maybe it's not this week, maybe it's this month, or maybe it's just sometime during this series. But I can tell you, that when you find that balance in these buckets, because none of them are bad either, there's a lot of good that we can do with the resources that we've been given. But I think it starts with the time where we're satisfied in the relationship with God himself. In fact, the band is going to sing a final song for us this morning. And I want you to just listen for a couple of lyrics in this song. Because it says the secret of life is knowing how to enjoy the passing of time. And the secret of love is being able to open your heart. So let me pray for us that way, and we'll hear the band. Jesus, thank you that you forgive us for the mistakes that we make. Thank you that you want to give us rest. I pray in your name, with humbleness, with thankfulness, that you would help us to enjoy the passing of time and to open up our hearts, even today. Amen.